Thursday Finance with Stephen Pritchard joining me, Jane Klein, and uh, we're going to take a look at investing for -for not-for-profit organisations. Seems interesting. We'll have our market snapshot with Henry Jennings and we'll also just see what our markets and our commodities are doing at this stage. To a new RFM, the home of your easy listening favourites in Newcastle and the Hunter. It's a quarter past 12 and Thursday finance and welcome to Stephen Pritchard. And there's something in the Herald today, Stephen, about British pension transfers being frozen. Now, that may just have an impact on uh, some of... Some of our British residents, or it's, it's not actually residents that, in the Hunter. Yes, it's, it's not actually the transfer of the actual pensions. It's transfers of the lump sum in the pension funds, which are, they're called pension funds in the UK and they're called superannuation funds here. Um, what happened, the, the, the rules in the UK changed. The Australian funds were given plenty of notice. Um, and after the 6th of April, I think the date is, the, the UK stopped remitting um, lump sums out of their superannuation funds or pension funds to our superannuation funds. And it's basically to do with the Australian rules don't align with the UK rules, particularly in respect of the early release provisions in Australia, which, which aren't in the UK funds rules. So the UK government or Her Majesty's Customs and Revenue Office um, will no longer approve the transfer of um, lump sums out of um, UK pension funds to our super funds. Okay, so it doesn't affect the actual payment of the pension? Not if you're already such. getting a pension, no, it doesn't, mm, it doesn't have any. If you're already getting a pension from the UK fund, that's fine. And if you've already transferred the money to the Australian and fun, um, that's that's fine too. So uh, there was a window of opportunity oh, to do there, that. There was there was notice that this was coming for a long time. Right. Yeah, so it hasn't been something. Um, you know, you would have thought that the, the, the public of our funds would have resolved the issue by now. To be honest. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you see the Australian rules or laws changing to um, to adjust? Um, I wouldn't have thought it's that difficult to do, to okay. be honest. Okay. It's, it's just a, it's a trustee to the fund has to change. Right. Oh, okay. All right. So we needn't get too worried about that at this stage. I wouldn't worry about it unless you've got a lot of money in a UK pension fund, Jane. <laughs> yes, I think I, I once um, qualified to get about 3.5p a week. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, never mind. Uh, on with um, other prices of things this week. What are commodities looking like? Well, the, the gold price was, uh, was, was down um, uh, $3 on the week to $1,556 an ounce. Um, the silver price was, was up a couple of cents to $20.42. Um, the copper price was, was, was up 0.3% to $7,441 a tonne. And the nickel price was up 5.8% to $15,546 a tonne. And the tin price was up 3.2% to $19,800 a tonne. So the commodities all moved the exact opposite direction to what they did last week, where the, the precious metals were up and the, the base metals were down. So we, we've kind of had moved back the other way now, back where we were. And my 3.5p a week isn't going to get very much, is it? <laughs> um, well, the $8 dollars Fallen over the week, so it might be worth four and a half p now, oh. four p now. <laughs> Subject Five to running, cents maybe. Yeah, so the A dollar's down to seventy three cents against the US dollar, which was down just a one percent on the week. Um, down two point five percent against the British British pound, and um, the 
yuan, which is the Chinese currency, um, we were down 1.1, just on 1%, and we're up 1.6% against the US dollar. And the other thing we're up against is 0.7% against the Canadian dollar. Okay. So, you know, just variations around 1%, but the Australian dollar continues to drift lower against the US currency. That doesn't count as a fall, it's just a drift. Drift, drift, Good. drift. It falls, okay. it falls more than one, isn't it? I don't know. <laughs> is it? Okay. <laughs> um, which is 0.7 cents or something. Um, so that won't make much difference to anything except if you've got a lot of money. Um, and the Australian share market was, you know, ha- has had a roughy, rough patch over the last uh, few days of last week, um, but but it rallied a bit in the last the end of, towards the end of the week, and so it was up five thousand uh, up to five thousand six hundred eighty points at the end of the week, which is up almost three percent on the week. And the US Dow Jones was also up three percent to eighteen thousand and fifty. Um, the Hang Seng, which kind of, in a certain extent, replicates what's happening in China. Um, previously, you remember it was it was down something like ten percent on the previous week. Uh, this week, it's up six point five percent to twenty five thousand and fifty five. So the China China market, the Chinese stock market, is still quite volatile, mm-hmm. even though the Chinese government has one solution: stop trading in half the stocks. <laughs> right, that is one solution. And banned selling. <laughs> and by, no doubt, uh, yes. By, by, uh, <laughs> Um, well, it stops things, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's one way. I'm sure Henry will have Henry Jennings will have something to say about the Chinese situation. And I'm sure he will. Um, and Wex Texas, Wex Texas Intermediate was up um, just on a cent, up one percent the week to seventy dollars a barrel. Now that's interesting because the, as the Iranian transaction comes freeing up trade with Iran, it's expected there'll be another half billion dollar, half million dollars, half million barrels of oil a day going into the market, which one would have thought would, would push the price down, but that's not happening. Um, except in unleaded fuel in Newcastle, was down by half a cent on the week to $1.40.5 a litre. And in Sydney, it was down 3.6 cents, 3.6 percent around the week to a dollar thirty-five a litre. Okay. So we're back to a five cents a litre difference, Jane. Mm, we are. Yeah. And diesel. And diesel, um, pretty similar. A dollar thirty-six a litre in Newcastle, a dollar thirty a litre in Sydney. Not so diesel's still a little bit cheaper than unleaded. Diesel's still cheaper than unleaded. Mm. I had a when I was in Brisbane last week. I drove in one of these um, Toyota hybrid cars. Yes. And it's a different experience because. Have you ever driven one? That, no. That, no. Well, they hardly use any petrol. Right? That's like a huge range because it's got this electric engine. And the, the big change is you, can, you can't tell whether it's going or not because it doesn't make any noise. So does it use petrol some of the time? It uses petrol some of the time. And yeah. can you hear it when it's using petrol? You no, can't. It's all not, just quiet. Not the only way you know there's this light on the dashboard that tells you what's happening. Okay. So that was a good experience? That was a different experience. To NURFM, 26 past 12, and oh dear, I've misled you. Henry Jennings is not joining us today for our market snapshot because he's on holiday and in New Zealand, and I hope he's having a really nice time. But we will take a look at the financial topics of the moment, and Stephen will share his insights with us. So... BHP is in the news at the moment, and uh, they've got a few financial problems, have they? Well, I wouldn't say they have financial problems. BHP is a very strong company, but you know they, they, the things are a bit tougher than they used to be. I mean, the, the, the iron ore price is down, um, the oil price is down, 
and now they have to write off about $2 billion on the US shale oil assets that they bought a couple of years ago. BHP, you know, this is not the first time BHP appears to be quite accident prone on acquiring assets. So, you know, they bought the shale oil assets previously, particularly in the US previously, but before they bought that Magna Copper thing, which in a couple of years they had to write down to nothing. So, um, you know, you, you need to wonder whether BHP should actually be buying any assets at all. But yeah, so they've, they're going to talk here, there's talk of a two to three billion dollar write down on their US shale oil assets. Um, some people say they pay too much, others are just saying it's because of the, the fall in the oil price. But either way, those shareholders have lost another considerable amount of money. So the losing is only really when it comes to the resale, isn't it? Or is it? I always wonder about writing things down. Well, the accounting standards require you to to to, to do a, um, a valuation assessment on on and usually discounted cash flow models used. Um, so so to sure and to make sure there's no impairment charge. So yes, it's not a cash outflow, but but what we're saying is that thing we paid um, ten dollars for is now really only worth five dollars. So it's re- it's a real loss. It is an actual loss. Yeah. But it doesn't. Will the cash it... is paid out previously. Okay. So would it affect dividends? Um, it won't in BHP's case, but but it, but in another company, so it'll it affect could. yeah mm. yeah it'll affect dividends because um, BHP's got so much retained profits it's not going to. But but yes, companies usually only pay their their um, dividends out of profits, and you're writing assets down, so you you're decreasing your profits. And another perhaps not quite so good news story with perpetual funds. Well, Pet- perpetual, yes, that's interesting. Perpetual is one of Australia's leading fund managers, and um, there were some numbers came out this week. Um, to say that um, since June they've lost $4.5 billion of their funds under management. So um, Perpetual's um, returns haven't haven't actually been the best in the last short period of time, the last period of time. So I assume some of the investors are taking their money out of Perpetual and going elsewhere, and $4.5 billion is a fair amount of money to come out, so I'd expect that would, uh, would affect um, Perpetual's uh, profit for the year. Mm. And back to mining again, um, iron ore mines. Mm. Prices are low. Yes, prices are low and going lower by the day, by the sound of it. Um, Mount Gibson's a small iron ore, or not, not, not small, but, but a iron ore, a second ranking iron ore mining in um, WA. Um, and they've announced that if um, the prices remain low, they, they may still have to, they may have to shut their iron ore mine. Now, at the prices we're getting, um, you know, one stage there was below forty dollars a ton. Um, it's it's probably only Rio and um, BHP that's making any any money out of um, iron ore mining, and and all these um, um, secondary producers and smaller producers um, are just losing money on every ton they're taking out of the ground now. Um, sooner or later, they, these are going to have to shut down. Okay, and the iron so stays in the ground then. So it's no, it's no surprise. Um, um, that being said, that BHP's um, or Rio's was um, Rio's um, mining results were out this week, the tonnage results, and they're exporting more than ever. So they're actually trying to make up their profits by uh, increasing their their tonnage of exports, which of course is pushing the prices down further. Hmm. Okay, so um, it might not be a good idea for BHP to make acquisitions, but what about Challenger? It seems uh, to be going down that track. Yeah, Challenge, Challenger is a, a funds management group in Australia. Um, they're one of the largest products is these uh, annuities that, that are very popular with retirees now. 
um, because you get a slightly better interest rate than, than a term deposit. And there was some tax advantages on those, but I, I think they largely disappeared. Um, but anyhow, Challenge has also got this uh, other business where they invest in small fund managers, and um, that's been very successful for them. So, so startup fund managers, Challenger buys some equity in there and helps them with their administration and distribution and things like that. So that they've bought a UK funds management group that basically does the same thing. So Challenger's attempted to attempting to diversify across the um, to the UK. Um, Challenge has been very successful in Australia, but um, one wonders, you see time and time again, Australian companies go overseas and don't do very well at all, which is... NAB was one of those. Which is the next (laughs) on the list, which is National Australia Bank. Um, At least they've gone to the UK. At least the UK has got a similar cultural and legal background to us. But, you know, going to Asia and um, places like that usually ends in a disaster. Mm, perhaps because our companies don't necessarily know exactly however the nuances you've got, you've got of the, the market. You, you mean, you've got the language barrier, you've got different legal systems. Yes. Um, as, as hard enough going in the UK and the US, I would have thought. But NAB has been capital raising. Uh, yes, NAB is capital raising. They've come out today. Well, there's been a whole lot of debate about... Um, what capital's required for banks and um APRA's basically come out this week and said that the big four banks have to increase their their capital to meet to become in the top quartile of Australian um of, of internationally well capitalized banks and we're well down the list. Um I think twenty fifth or something. Um so the the big four banks are going to have to raise additional capital. Um and of course NAB's come out and said, Oh well we foresaw all this and um we've already done the heavy lifting in capital raising. But but that remains to be seen. They've still got to extricate themselves from the um from the um Clyde Style Bank and the Yorkshire Bank in the UK. And of course one of the reasons they did raise this additional capital was it wasn't to to, to um, satisfy APRA was to satisfy the regulatory uh, bodies in the UK to allow them to exit from the, the Clydesdale Bank and the um, Yorkshire Bank in the UK. So that might stand them in good stead. Yes, well I think all the banks are going to raise additional capital one way or the other and they can do it through issuing new shares which will, which will depress the price of the existing shares as happened in the NAB shares, um, dividend reinvestment plan. Um, but all these things are going to shrink the return on equity so um, I wouldn't be rushing in to buy bank shares at the moment. Mm. Thursday Finance for our sponsor Pritchard and Partners. And Stephen Pritchard, we're in the middle of taking a look at some of the companies, seeing what they're up to around the way, our market snapshot today. And we're back to shopping and grocery and other shopping with the big duopoly, Coles and Woolworths. Coles and Woolworths, yes. Um, it was interesting, though, this, when I was in Brisbane, there's a lot more IGA stores. Or they're a lot more prominent up there than they are here. You know, every suburb seems to have an IGA store. Um, yes, Coles and Woolworths have decided to cut their private label prices. Um, as, as you might have noticed recently, Coles and Woolworths have been you know, progressively um, putting private labels, coal select and, or is it Woolworths select and coal something or other, mm. um, coal's guest bar or something, and, and pushing out, um, the favourite brands that we like from the shops and replacing them with their brands. Um, so what they've done now, because all these, all these almost everything and all these their own brands, um, Coles and Woolworths are cutting the prices of their private labels to ward off Aldi. So they're basically retaliating by, with Aldi by cutting the prices of their own products, um, cutting into their own margins, 
and um, hoping to win back market share for Aldi. Um, I would have thought that this is actually the wrong strategy. Okay. I would have thought that, you know, by going down the private label route, they're, they're playing into all these hands. I mean, once you get to a private label, I mean, it's not the same. You're going to buy the Coles chocolate bar. It's not the same as buying the Cambridge chocolate bar. No, there's a kind of feeling associated with special brands, aren't yeah, there? Yeah, the brands is what's, and you know, what's, what's the Coles chocolate bar or what's the Woolworths chocolate bar or what's the Aldi chocolate bar? What's the difference? Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> okay, now, uh, so. You're just um, going to buy on price. There's going to be a bit more on this price war. Yeah, or this I think. General. I, I think there's a price war, but I, but I think they're taking it the wrong way. Okay, well, see if it works for them. Now, negative gearing, we spoke about that fairly recently, and it seems it might be under review in Australia. Yeah, I mean, the RBA has now come out and said that negative gearing is one of the causes of the, the property price bubble in Sydney. Um, that would be because? Uh, because it allows investors to deduct the losses on the on, on the, um, the, the, the losses on the property against their other income. Um, look, uh, that may have been the case. Um, around here, um, there's not much negative gearing tax deductions because the interest rates are slowly low and if you buy a property at a reasonable price and you put down a reasonable amount of deposit, um, you're generally not making much of a loss. So I wouldn't have thought that that um, it's going to save much money. And, and even Paul Kenning came out, they tried, Paul Kenning came out and said, you know, we tried to abolish negative gearing in the 1980s, I think it was, and all that happened is the, the rental prices that people rented the properties for actually went up. And the RBA does make some comment that negative gearing has the effect of keeping rents down. So I think it's going to be a hard call for the government, particularly the Liberal government, to abolish negative gearing. And if it does do it and the rents go up, um, people are not going to be happy. Mm, okay, so watch this space again. Now back to the supermarkets. Back to the supermarkets, it yes. It seems, um, I mean, I've always been interested in how their own brands in the supermarkets are always much less than the named brands like things like Coca-Cola, Pepsi and those ones. Mm-hmm. But it seems some of that might be changing. Um, yes, Coca-Cola has a new product out for, for those who don't know called Coca-Cola Life and it's in the green can. And so it must be good. <laughs> it must be good. It's in the green can. And basically what they've done is they've taken out 35% of the sugar and they've replaced it with um, this extract from a plant called the Stereo Plant. And I've actually got one of those growing in my backyard that mm. I saw at um, mm. one of the shops and we had to buy and put it in the yard. But if you, you can just grow it in the backyard. And I'm not sure Cake does that, but... The leaves on it are very sweet. So, so what they've done is they've somehow managed to extract the um, the sweetness from these leaves, and you can actually buy it at Coles down um, and Woolworths, stevia sweetening powder, and um, it's very sweet. It's a natural product. So what they've done is they replace 35% of the sugar. They claim it's um, uh, less kilojoules in it, better for you, and they're hoping to win back people who've have gone off Coca-Cola. Um, because of the health concerns back to Coke life. And a lot of people don't like those artificial sweeteners in, um, what is it? what's that other Coke? Mm, Coke yeah, Zero. Coke Zero, yes. Yeah, it's kind of got a metallic type okay. taste. So yeah. This is an alternative. Yeah, so this is an, this is an alternative to the artificial sweetener. And I actually had a can of it, um, this week, and it does really taste like the traditional Coke. Oh, thank you for going out and testing it. Yeah, it was only because someone had it there as a sample and said, try this. <laughs> 
Excellent. Otherwise, I wouldn't have. And, and it don't, they said they think you know they, their comment was this this might bring people back to drinking Coca Cola. Now uh, the company's dropping the price to uh, no doubt to get people to try it and oh. see what they think. Yes. Well, I suppose your taste was free, so My taste <laughs> it's was free. a similar principle. Now, the, the share market, we keep track of that every week. In fact, some of us every day, and um, it seems that it's not soaring these days. No, no. A couple of fund managers have come out today, or yesterday rather, and said that the share market's best days may be over. And what they're saying is that the, the interest rate issue, um, no one knows whether the rates are going up or down, so that, that creates uncertainty. Um, China's um, economic growth rates... Um, uh, were announced right on target, which was to be expected, of course, because um, and there's concern over um, what data actually China releases um, and what's really happening over there. So basically, a number of fund managers said that you know the best days are over for the share market for a while. Don't expect the returns in the next few years like you've had in the last few years. And there we're thinking about returns on buying and selling. Buying and selling, oh, the increase in price and dividends. I mean, I think the dividends are probably okay while the interest rates are low. Mm-hmm. Um, but but um, if interest rates start to rise, dividends will no doubt uh, fall and, and the price of the shares will probably fall as well. And just briefly to finish up with uh, Greece. Greece. <laughs> well, um, Greece, Greece is – Parliament has approved the austerity package – but I'm told a number of people in Greece aren't very happy and um, there's actually, as it was being approved, there was protests, a big protest outside of the Greek parliament. So um, I, I don't know where this is This is going to end. I mean, if they're like all politicians, they might, might decide that uh, we might need to reconsider this if it's so unpopular with the, with the public because the public did think they were voting no against any austerity packages. WNURFM's quarter to one, and this is Thursday Finance for our sponsor, Pritchard and Partners. Now, um, we're very happy to take your calls. Got a question you'd like the answer to? Give Stephen a call, 49216216. Now, we're thinking about not-for-profit organisations, Stephen, and um, is investing a little bit different for them? Um, in some, some ways it is, but in other ways you should apply the same principles. I mean... Some of these not-for-profits have become quite large and um, a lot of them um, may be very good at, at um, doing whatever activity the not-for-profit is, but when it comes to managing the, the, the assets that they've accumulated, um, a lot of times you'll find when, when you, you're asked to give them a bit of help, they'll have something like you know 10 different bank accounts and no one really knows where all the assets are and and when you actually add up the assets in there, there's quite a lot of money that's not really being effectively managed. And, you know, you can um, increase the returns that they're getting on their assets just by simple things like um, putting in proper cash management um, arrangements and, and, and pooling all the bank accounts. I mean... And then, you know, as you know yourself, if you go to the bank with, you know, small balances, you'll get nothing. But if you, you, you know, add them all together, the, the more money you've got in one account, the more money they'll pay you. So, the, you know, in a non-profit, the first thing you really need to look is, is to, um, where, where the existing money is invested. Is it all, and, and, you know, they often will leave hundreds of thousands of dollars just sitting in their, their check account because it's really no one's job 
to, to manage that. Mm, so their hearts are in the right place, but they really need to do a little bit of a business acumen. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the hearts are in the right place, but a lot of these places have just come around by, you know, people people have started something to help someone, and then over the years donations have come in and they've had successful fundraising activities, and, you know, they usually run on the, the smell of an eye rag and people donate their time, and, and so they don't have much cost and, and, you know, they don't usually pay any tax, so the money just mounts up. Okay, so um, what about managing? Well, managing their cash, they should have it. Yeah, they should 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 do. You know, the first thing is to to consolidate all the money into one account. Second thing is to to do some kind of cash flow budget and look at what their requirements are, and then then basically they need to look at where they can invest the money. Now, this is important because, um, and this is probably part of the problem. You know, not so many years ago that the um. These non-profits could could only invest in um, what we call trustee securities, and um, or trustee authorised trustee investments. Now a lot of, a lot of that stuff's now being done away with, and um, they they can in, the prudent man principle actually gets applied. And what that means is that where would the prudent person invest the money? So that's a completely different outlook on things. The the authorised trustee investments were just a list of things that could be invested in. Uh, the prudent man's you know, a wider um, test criteria. So uh, is that different from the reasonable man? A reasonable man. Well, I don't man. know. Doesn't that come up in law? Yeah, different should, concept. Shouldn't we all be prudent or should not-for-profit organisations be more prudent? Well, they should be more prudent, but then you need to look at the rules too right. because, you know, you need to look at how these things are set up. I mean, the first thing you need is go to the constitution of them. Um, a lot of set up by companies by guarantee. Um, there's a few that are set up under acts of parliament, not so much anymore. And some are set up under the Associations and Corporation Act. And you need to have a look at the rules of those organisations to see where the money can actually be invested if the rules specify that. And um, it may be necessary the rules need to be changed or updated to, to permit more modern um, investment practices to be followed. So lots of regulations, of course. Lots of regulations mm. to, to, to follow before you get started. On 2NURFM, it's 5 to 1, and a quick check of the weather for our sponsor, Snap Freeze, your Dakin Air Conditioning Service Specialists. Possible shower, we have 15 degrees at Bob's Farm. Thursday Finance and... Just finishing up talking about investing for not-for-profit organisations, Stephen Pritchard. Um, what else is really essential for um, these um, organisations? After we've decided where we can invest, what we need to do is document the investment strategy. And, and, and that doesn't have to be that complex. I mean, you, you need to – we always say you need to divide the money up into, say, two pots – one, one pot that you need for um, your day-to-day operations um, and you'd usually invest that in some term deposits or some fixed interest things and with back back at the beginning we spoke about the cash flow requirements so just to match up to make sure you've got the cash there and the other thing the other the other lot of money we'd put in a uh, some kind of reserve account um, and we'd look at investing a, a proportion of that in um, fixed interest um, shares and maybe some property to provide some additional income and growth for the assets of the non-profit organisation over, over the time. But it all comes back that documenting it in the investment strategy what the, the governing body of the non-profit's comfortable with and um, when's their requirements for um, cash. And once you start doing, you sit down and talk to them and lots of interesting things come out um, that, 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 that hasn't been thought of or, or they've thought of doing things but but they haven't really had a plan of how to get there and part of the investment strategy can be that you know if they want to buy a holiday house for their members or something like that 
um, you, you know, we can sort of create an investment strategy and how, and how much we've got to put aside to, to, to try and get to that target. So, so it can be quite an interesting process. And as I said earlier, we, we've got one client who, who came to us and they had 26 separate bank accounts. So the first, first thing we did was shut all those. <laughs> and just by doing that, you're getting nothing on, on 26. And just by putting in a cash management account, you know, you, you're getting two or three percent. So there's lots of things to think yeah, about when yeah, you're investing for, for a non-profit yeah, organization. Yeah. And that's Thursday Finance for today. Thank you, Stephen Pritchard. And we'll be back next Thursday after the midday news on 2NURFM. News coming your way next.